Good afternoon. Welcome, everyone, to this session, Migrating Microsoft Applications to AWS Like an Expert. And let me just uh, get this out of the door. The expert here, I'm not very popular. Uh, expert here refers to the customers who have done it before you, customers who have run Windows workloads on AWS, uh, what we've heard from them, what has worked well, uh, what are the patterns, practices that can help you, uh, that has helped them run Microsoft applications on AWS. And uh, we're going to share some of those patterns, practices, and see hopefully uh, something resonates with you and you can uh, take it back uh, to, to your organization. Uh, but before that, thank you for being here. I think the entire week, and this is Thursday, it's been a power-packed week, a uh, lo lot of sessions. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you uh, found time to network with other customers, peers, colleagues, uh, exchange thoughts. Uh, and I know specifically for Microsoft Technologies on AWS, there have been many sessions this week. So just out of curiosity, uh, if you can have a show of hands, how many of you have attended at least one other Microsoft-specific session this week? Wow, a lot of people. You're a tough act to follow. <laughs> so I'm Giriraj, uh, Giriraj Daga, Solution Architect. Uh, I've been with AWS for almost two years. Uh, I started working with .NET technology. That was my first project, uh, converting a .NET 1.1 app to .NET 2.0 uh, way back in 2006. Uh, crystal report dependencies, trying to work with stored procedures, optimization. So it's a very special moment for me uh, to standing before you here talking about migrating Microsoft applications to now. AWS, a lot of change. Uh, I'm joined here with my colleague and friend, Rahul, Rahul Kulkarni. We both work out of Bangalore. Uh, I support mostly the large enterprise customers in India, and Rahul works uh, mostly with uh, partners, our GSIs. So collectively, we have worked together, uh, working with our customers and partners, building applications, deploying applications on AWS, and Microsoft applications just happens to come up quite a lot. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of customers uh, are running Windows workloads on AWS, whether it's Adobe, Pitney Bowes, uh, Kaplan, General Electric, Samsung, you name it. They're running, uh, they trust AWS platform for running their business critical workloads, be it Exchange, be it Active Directory, SQL Server, uh, Dynamics. Uh, and this, has been, this is the 10th year anniversary uh, this year of uh, AWS supporting helping customers run Windows workloads on AWS. Uh, it started way back in 2008 with the Windows Server 2003 available on AWS. So it's been quite a journey, and the customer base just has been increasing. And I'm always curious, even now today when I have a, a, a new conversation that starts about migrating workloads on AWS, uh, my first uh, inkling is to go check, uh, why, why are customers migrating? Uh, what do they want to achieve from this migration? What are the objectives uh, they, they have in mind to uh, get us benefits out of the migration? Uh, and I've been often surprised by the kind of reactions I've got. For example, I've worked with an ISV. Uh, personally, they have a product stack completely built on Windows. Uh, they were working, they, they had their uh, colo providers in the US, and business started doing well. They were in the financial industry, regulated industry. They had to expand to Canada. And for some, uh, it just happened for them that the colo provider that they were working with did not have data center in uh, Canada. So that was a trigger for them to go out, look for options, what, what's available. And uh, when they started looking out, they realized they don't want any bespoke solution. They wanted 
uh, highly available and performant application, but also somewhere where you can standardize uh, their uh, un underlying technology platform. And uh, so that was their key reason, the, that standardization and global scale, because as their business is expanding, they might be going to other countries. And, uh, and the global scale of AWS helped them uh, support, align with their uh, business goals. But at the same time, this told me something very interesting that stayed with me. Uh, they said, uh, we're also looking to either be acquired or acquire other companies. And that's why we want to be nimble. And uh, we, as we are growing fast and doing working. good for ourselves, but we want to be very nimble in, uh, in how we look at our IT. So that was, that was a, a different perspective for me. And while very recently I've worked with a large enterprise in India where uh, the, the director of IT told me that they don't want to be managing the business of routers, switches, uh, the entire data center. They had, they had the aging hardware, so they, have to do, they had to do a refresh. So he uh, had to make a call whether to go with a high upfront investment or do uh, an OPEX-based model. And uh, we usually uh, had the discussion. And uh, what he told me was also, yeah, OPEX is important for me, but it's not just OPEX. What's really important for me is that when I bought those servers eight years back and I was running my ERP application way back then, it was good for that age and time and it performed really well. But over the eight years, my business has grown. Uh, I've added more CPU RAM to those machines, but, but overall there has been performance degradation uh, from, the way, from where I was. And while OPEX is important for me, and, and that's one reason I'm looking at AWS, but more importantly for me is that I can be a highly uh, available performant application all the time. Right now I'll do a hardware refresh, I go uh, about it in year time if my business grows really well, and, if, and you keep launching new instances, uh, new instance types, new EBS configuration, you just uh, are innovating on behalf of the customer, so we, take, we want to take advantage of that. So I just wanted to leave with that thought that while there's a wide spectrum of reasons why customers are migrating workloads on AWS, uh, I do insist that everyone uh, uh, would, would have to, I think, implore and understand what their migration goals are, and accordingly that, that kind of guides you through that journey of what choices you make what considerations you have to select a platform and during that migration journey, uh, w uh, how to go about it. So while uh, the reasons are many, but at the same time, there are some fundamental questions that keep coming up all the time. And I believe uh, maybe you will some of this will resonate with you. So the first question uh, uh, we typically get asked is, what are the unique capabilities offered by the platform for Microsoft applications? What is that uh, you've developed that helps to run Microsoft applications on AWS? Do you support all versions? Do you support all softwares? Do you support all Microsoft applications? If I have customized applications, uh, let's say SharePoint with web parts or different ISP products, can I run all of that? Do I have to change anything? Uh, what's same? What's different? Tell me about it. What, does, what, what are those unique capabilities on the platform uh, that help you run Windows workloads? And then immediately after that, they typically uh, uh, come across this uh, specific concern. Uh, migrating is not new for folks working with Microsoft software, right? We've upgraded OS, we've upgraded runtimes. Uh, what lessons we've learned from that is that migration will lead to a period where you, there will be an overlap. You'll be in two environments supporting two, uh, your current environment and a target environment. And there's a lot of resources and time. If it's a prolonged process, 
then it's a lot of wasted resources. So your first, uh, uh, your first uh, objective is to understand how long it's going to take. And with that comes how complex it is. Uh, what are the, my critical path? So that if I have to work with my business, make a business case, what are my high-risk scenarios? Uh, how do I consider all of that? And then once, once I have that model, what, what can AWS offer to accelerate that journey? Uh, do you have any tools, patterns, practices that I can take up so that the migration becomes smooth for me and seamless and I reduce those risks and look at, and, and specifically after that, how do I optimize? Migration itself doesn't add any business capability. So uh, what are the ways in which I can optimize my workloads on AWS? And then, uh, this is really the meat. Migration, usually, as I said, those drivers of uh, looking at either cost savings or moving towards agility, usually it's a means to an end. Uh, people want to migrate fast, add new capabilities. Some are looking to add maybe uh, get more insights from the data that they already have, look at maybe the best of breed analytic solutions, or uh, maybe add intelligent AI ML uh, make their applications more intelligent with maybe using directly an AI ML application service, maybe voice enable their IVR, or, or things like that. Add new capabilities fast, and maybe even experiment some things fast for the business. So that's really where they want to be. Uh, so they, then they're looking, but why are they not able to do that today? Because uh, in some perspective, uh, governance and security kind of uh, holds the organization back uh, apart from the infrastructure choices. Uh, and, but they, that's something they can't give up. Uh, you built a lot of time and uh, looked at your industry and your organization, built those controls. You want to bring them over, and you want, to, you want better. We are living in an environment where there's a lot of threats, a lot of vulnerabilities on a regular basis. So you definitely want a better uh, uh, platform in terms of uh, security and compliance. Uh, and we believe at scale that uh, while, while it is better and you can do it, we look at ways in which you can uh, do automated security and compliance controls uh, uh, so that it's a continuous process. So without uh, getting to the point, so in this session, we're going to look at uh, and through a lens of a fictitious customer who runs Microsoft Workload and walk through their landscape and what, how do they, what considerations they have to make and what choices do they make. While what decisions they make, it's a fictitious company, so you can obviously give us that credit to make some assumptions. But I think what we want to leave you with is the holistic approach, how you can take those patterns, practices, and tools back to your workloads, uh, see how you can use uh, some of them. And also, more importantly, the considerations, because then you can decide what's best for your workload. And while you start migrating, we also see that my patterns start to emerge. And those patterns, uh, the way to bring migration efficiency is to automate. And infrastructure as a code is the new capability offered by AWS that can significantly change how you look at provision, manage, uh, operate on cloud. So we look at that as an approach and the AWS tools to support that, how it can improve the efficiency. And again, this one key part I would like to highlight there, that while automation will, yes, improve, bring consistency, it will uh, improve your quality because you, you've automated, you've taken the human error out of it. Uh, but I think more, the more important part there is that it allows you a capability to adapt and be flexible. Because no matter where you start, you have your own learnings, you'd have other peers learning, best practices from the industry, 
You want an automated process where you can take all these uh, 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 in a normal, continuous way. And that's what uh, we'll look at both in repeatable architecture, using the tools, and also how to build the security and compliance in an automated way so that you can remain an, uh, a nimble and flexible. So let right, get to it, um, uh, AWS. So we have the most experience running Windows workload on AWS. But what does it mean for you? Uh, what it means for the customers is that over these 10 years, we've We've, understood, we've gone through highs and lows to understand how to optimize Windows workload for cloud. What are the scenarios that are different on cloud? And also, how can we accelerate it uh, for the cu other customers who are going to join? For example, we've created quick start deployments. Uh, just one-click deployment, you can have an entire uh, Microsoft stack with Active Directory, SQL Server, uh, maybe SharePoint uh, Farm. All that's uh, stood up for you, you Maybe it's afternoon, you come out, you launch that uh, uh, cloud formation template or a quick start uh, and do, do your work by evening after three, four hours, the entire stack is ready. You couldn't do that on premises. Those are the, uh, I would say, accelerators that are built in to help you uh, deploy uh, with best practices. Those, those templates include best practices. For example, we have availability zones. I think this week you've heard probably availability zones many times. Uh, but I think the emphasis, we just can't uh, emphasize it enough of how different, uh, what kind of options it enables. So uh, availability zone is a physically separated uh, location. Each availability zone is a cluster of data center. So your fault tolerance there is different. And then uh, they're engineered for physical isolation. But again, what does it mean for Microsoft workloads? If you had to create HA environment for SQL Server currently on-premises, the options were to do it maybe on, uh, within the same data center, uh, two racks, maybe different floors. But that's, that's where your HA configuration uh, uh, for SQL Server was. And then for, to be tolerant against physical failures, maybe fire, maybe generator electricity failure, you had to take it off-site and you set up a DR. Now, if we have a low latency network, which is like miles apart, uh, but it provides you nine, uh, nine millisecond or less latency, then you can have two SQL Server nodes across two different physical locations which have different power supply, and those could be still in always on availability group. That, that can be your HA setup. And then many customers, many, many customers I see, uh, many big enterprise customers, global customers, now they're even considering then uh, one is I have two AZs in one region, which is the minimum. Most new regions are coming up with three AZs. So if I have my cluster spread across three AZs, which is like three clusters of data centers, do I even need a DR? If my availability is the, uh, uh, it, is, it has offsite, it has a tolerance against physical failures. So that just, uh, again, underlying footprint, uh, the high available architecture, high, highly available infrastructure enables you to build on top of that and take advantage of that. And all that is codified into those quick starts so that you, don't, you can start right away from there. So many things like that. I'll not take too much time, but there's documents, resources, uh, managed services, uh, that all these features have been built in with, with the feedback from the customers, and, and that uh, we'll go through some of them along the way today and see how that helps to run Magnus workload on cloud. So yeah, a uh, lot of features, and 
quite frankly, I was very excited. Uh, this week, Andy launched, uh, in Andy's keynote, he announced the managed file server for Windows workload, right? That was a long, long ask from the customers. Uh, so uh, I'm excited, but I'm equally waiting when it will be available in BOM, uh, the BOM region, so that we can take it back to our customer closer, closer uh, at home. So Windows is a first-class citizen. Uh, again, I don't want to go through all the uh, line items, but something that's close to my heart, I'm, I'm, I started as a developer. I like staying in Visual Studio. Uh, so I can work out of Visual Studio, build a .NET full framework app or a .NET Core app, deploy it right out of Visual Studio to AWS. If I had been using Azure VSTS or Azure DevOps, uh, I can extend that pipeline and deploy my application on AWS. If I wanted to use the premier, the serverless compute function, where what's better than no servers? Right? I just focus on my code, I deploy, I don't have to worry about my patching, OS, capacity planning. So my blast radius, even my concerned scope is reduced for the security. So nothing like it. And they, they all support .NET Core 2.1 right now, uh, and even code build, the managed build service, uh, where uh, uh, if I have a team of five people or 50 people, uh, how many builds they do, I don't have to do any planning for that. So all these uh, just reinforce the fact that AWS uh, has made it easier to run Windows workloads on cloud. A lot of, it's a broad set of IT services that help you run uh, in a secure way, highly performant way, uh, your Windows workloads on the cloud. So with that, uh, I'll request Rahul to uh, take you through a journey of uh, migration accelerators. Thanks, Giri. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Rahul Kulkarni. I'm a solutions architect, as uh, Giri mentioned, and I help uh, partners and customers build and migrate applications to AWS. Right? So in the next 10 minutes or 15 minutes, I'm going to talk to you about migration accelerators that will help you migrate your applications, Windows applications, to AWS, uh, talk about patterns, practices, and tools that not only help you accelerate your migration, but also help you optimize and, and uh, get the real value of running on AWS, right? And the way I'm going to do this is through the lens of a fictitious customer, like uh, Giri mentioned. It's Unicorn Shop, right? So without further ado, let me just introduce Unicorn Shop. <laughs> Isn't that cute? So Unicorn Shop is uh, an online e-commerce company. It also has a brick-and-mortar store. Now, the motto of Unicorn Shop is to enable anyone with the dream of being a unicorn to look like one, OK? <laughs> so it is a Microsoft shop, right? It runs uh, business productivity applications, .NET, and uh, SQL Server. As Giri mentioned, there are a lot of developers who are, using, who are using Visual Studio, and they've built custom .NET applications using uh, Visual Studio and .NET, right? But recently, they've, they've migrated their entire exchange to Office 365. So their email is currently hosted in Office 365. So this is the entire landscape. Now, with respect to migration, this is the typical migration methodology. You go with strategy, you go with plan, you go with build and migrate, and then you finally run. So what does that mean? So in strategy, you're evaluating your IT, uh, uh, IT estate. In the plan, that's where you're discovering all the applications, typically customers have to understand what are the type of applications that are running in the data centers, right? And categorize those applications into the 6R framework, right? To, to identify whether it's going to be a re-host or a re-platform, right? And then do a build and migrate, which is basically landing zone creation on AWS 
and migrating your applications. And when you go to run, it's about steady state operations. Now, while strategy and plan are very, very important uh, for migration, our session is just going to be focusing on build and migrate, right? We're going to talk about tools, patterns, and practices that will help you build and migrate uh, your Microsoft applications to AWS. So this is the typical IT landscape of, of uh, Unicorn Shop. As you can see, it's an e-commerce site. Uh, it has COTS products like SharePoint, Dynamics. It has custom .NET applications. Uh, of course, it has Active Directory to manage identities. And it uses System Center Operations Manager, SCOM, for monitoring and management, right? And if you look. It's a unicorn. It's a unicorn, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you look at uh, Unicorn Shop, though it's a fictitious company, I believe it is very representative of all the customers that we have talked to, right? You're talking about applications with different profiles. Profile one are applications which require compliance that have to be treated differently, right? That is number one. Number two is COTS applications, which are commercial off the shelf, which has to be installed. That is number two, right? And number three is your custom .NET applications, which have to be treated differently, which where your developer productivity is of utmost importance. Now, with these three patterns, let's, let's see how the migration accelerators and patterns can be built, right? So, like I said before, let's assume that Unicorn Shop has, has completed the strategy and planning, and they've come up with this kind of a migration strategy, right? So the COTS applications will be re-hosted, the regulatory application also will be re-hosted, right? The custom .NET applications, some of them can be re-platformed to use containers, and some of them, they want to be uh, refactored to use serverless components, as Giri was mentioning, right? So this is their migration strategy. Now, how does the migration journey actually start in terms of all the sequence? So typically on AWS, you start with building your landing zone, right? So that means you set up your AWS account, uh, you set up network connectivity, you set up your security baseline, you, uh, you, know, you, you bring in your Microsoft Active Directory, you enable logging, notifications. So that becomes your landing zone. And once your landing zone is set up, you start migrating your applications so that multiple, app, multiple people, multiple teams can start migrating in parallel. Right? So this is the typical pattern that we see customers following while migrating applications to AWS. Now, while this is true, what I want to start with is talk about patterns and practices for Microsoft applications first, right? And the underlying dependencies. And with respect to account setup and other things, I'll, I'll be covering it in the next section, okay? So here, we, I'm, just, I'm just talking about these things. Uh, the reason being, you know, you're all here for understanding how to migrate your Microsoft applications. So what are the patterns that AWS has? What are the tools that AWS has? So we want to emphasize on that. So starting off with network architecture, right? There are two options that you can use uh, to, to connect your on-premise data center to AWS. Now, this is very, very critical because you can only migrate your data when you have connectivity options, right? So you have AWS Direct Connect, which is a dedicated connectivity option between uh, your data center and AWS. It, it gives you predictable performance with scalability. And the other option is VPN tunnels, right? This is over the internet and typically is used as uh, a backup for your direct connect, right? Now, with respect to the VPC design patterns, since we're talking about Microsoft applications, now, 
most of the Microsoft applications, and, and since uh, we, also are, we also have regularity and compli compliance-related applications which have to be isolated, they will be running on separate VPCs, which are, are separate network boundaries, right? And while they're running on separate network boundaries, they all have shared resources. These resources could be Active Directory, could be your monitoring tools, your management tools, or could be application proxies, which are controlling egress and uh, ingress, right? So the pattern that we recommend is to centralize those two things, those uh, in, a, in a separate VPC. Now, these has two benefits. One is it helps you save cost. You don't have to, rep you don't have to install all these applications or Active Directory and, and monitoring on individual VPCs, which are a different network. That's number one. Number two, it also helps you centralize the entire management of these tools, right? So you have one team that has access to it and can, and can do it. So the other thing is the transit VPC. Now, this is a dated slide, okay, with the announcement of a transit gateway. Now, typically, if you have multiple VPCs trying to talk to your on-premise data center, you would require a, a transit VPC kind of a solution, which was implemented using Cisco CSRs or any of those things. But recently, we announced our transit gateway, which helps you build a hub-and-spoke model where all your VPCs can connect to your on-premise data center with transitive routing. So what we recommend is to centralize your core shared infrastructure and, and set up a separate VPC for that. Now, extending on the same thing, the, the next thing that I want to migrate is, or, or set up, is Active Directory. What are the options that I have for Active Directory on AWS? One is I can run Active Directory on EC2 instances. The other one is when I'm running Microsoft, uh, sorry, AWS managed AD. Uh, so these are the two options that are available to, to, to you, right? And with respect to the network infrastructure, like I said before, you install or you configure your, your managed AD on, on your uh, shared services VPC. And the patterns that, that uh, typically you have uh, for, for bringing, for AD patterns are one is when you, uh, uh, when you extend your entire domain itself, which is very common to setting up a new offsite, right? That is number one. Number two is when you're talking about trust, right? Uh, you're talking about federated trust or one-way or two-way trust. So these are the two typical patterns. And with, in the context of Microsoft, sorry, in the context of Unicorn Shop, they, they went with a managed AD in the central uh, shared services VPC they enabled one-way trust to their on-premise data center. And since we talked about this before, they had some workload running in Office 365. The way they would authenticate with that is use ADFS uh, to authenticate with uh, Office 365 on-premise. Now, when they decided to run all-in on AWS, they could use ADMT and, and, and PES to migrate their, to, to move their Active Directory objects and users to AWS and also re replicate their passwords onto AWS. And once these, this is done, they can actually run the ADFS on the shared services VPC to authenticate with Office 365 applications. The other option that you have is AWS SSO, which is a completely managed services. So you don't have to look at managing high availability for your ADFS. So this is the pattern that you can look at when you have uh, applications which, where, where you can have identity on AWS 
and also work with third-party SaaS applications like Office 365 or Salesforce, right? So, so the next thing I want to talk about, uh, a building block, is SQL Server database migration, right? The options that you have to migrate your database are you can run SQL Server on EC2 instances. Now, you would consider this when you want full control on your entire database, or you're running SSIS or SSRS workload, or you have existing licenses that you want to bring to AWS. This is when you would consider running SQL Server on EC2. The other thing is when you're running uh, RDS, which is a completely managed option, which helps uh, you know, uh, do the undifferentiated heavy lifting, which typically is about setting up HA, backups, patching, right, is done by AWS. So all the undifferentiated heavy lifting is, is not required uh, by you guys. So you, you can just focus on what is important for you. Now, what are the migration options? So if you're considering the uh, SQL Server on EC2, all the native SQL Server migration options are available to you. So for example, you can use backup restore, import export, but keep in mind that this would require hours of downtime, which is very good for dev test environments. But if you're talking about production environments, you can go with a SQL log shipping, a hybrid architecture, or you can use a service which is native to AWS called the database migration service. Now, these three options help you achieve minimal downtime, okay? And when you're using RDS, the migration options that you can look at is backup and restore, uh, import export, or DMS. So these are the options that you look at. But with tools, when you're migrating databases, databases are big, right? You can't replicate them over the, the network. However fast your network is, it's gonna take some time. So your initial seed has to be a full backup of your on-premise database. So in order to get that initial seed onto AWS, you have two services that will help you. One is the AWS S3 Sync, Amazon S3 Sync, or you can use the uh, AWS Snow family, wherein you're, you're taking a full backup. Imagine you have a 10 terabyte database. You're taking a full backup, and you're shipping it to us so that we can restore it on S3 uh, and, and then you know, create an EC2 instance and, and uh, restore that backup there. So that is one. But in the meanwhile, there are a lot of changes that have happened on your on-premise on databases. So you can uh, do the ongoing replication using AWS DMS or any of the existing uh, uh, patterns that uh, SQL Server supports. Now, that's, that's the tools that AWS offers. Now, with respect to optimization, now, one is you can, uh, you can run optimized vCPU. So when you turn on your EC2 instance, you can say that I just want eight active vCPUs. So, so here the example is R4 4x large, which has 16 vCPUs. By running just eight vCPUs, some of the workloads, SQL Server is very memory hungry, right? So if your workload requires less CPUs and, and more memory, this is a way of saving license cost. Earlier we had very fixed t-shirt sizes, and here, you can actually say that, okay, you know, my, my uh, SQL Server with just eight cores is good enough. That's one of them. The other, uh, other option is with respect to storage optimization, and, and this, is, this is really important because, you know, as I said before, SQL Server is, is memory hungry, right? One of the ways you can look at optimizing your storage is through buffer pool extensions or, or even uh, temp databases, right? Now, we have i3 instances which have NVMe SSDs 
on, 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 on the rack, so which will help you read, uh, achieve very high IOPS between your SQL Server for your buffer pool extensions files or your tempdb. Now, I've seen, personally seen customers and partners save hundreds and thousands of, of dollars by just moving to i3 instances when you're running SQL Server because you don't require EBS volumes and PPI ops to make sure that you're saving, uh, you're saving on that. It's, it's all bundled into the instance. With that, I think I'll hand it, uh, I just want to cover about uh, Unicorn Shop very quickly. Now for the PCI compliant application, like I said before, the pattern that they followed was they did a full backup and restored on SQL Server. And, and for the ongoing incremental changes, they used the distributed always on availability group to migrate their data onto AWS. For the custom .NET application, they used MS SQL Server uh, and, and they replicated using DMS. Uh, you know, and, and one of the advantages that they saw by using RDS is they could achieve high availability or, you know, uh, they could meet their RPO and RTO requirements that the business had by, by just using the standard edition. Now with that, I just want to talk about building repeatable architectures, which is very, very key. And uh, I'll, ha I'll give it to Giri, who will take it forward. Sure. Okay. Thanks, Rahul. Uh, before I get into that, uh, it just uh, the DMS service, I want to share a couple of points uh, on that. It was launched in March 2006, and since then, 100, more than 100,000 databases have been migrated with that. Uh, so just to give you a perspective of how powerful, what, what does it mean for you as a, as a tool, as a service, if you want to use that. So you can have a, a source database. Uh, so database migration service, it's, it will replicate your database. So you launch it on an instance, and then you can set your source endpoint. You set your uh, uh, target endpoint. You initiate, you set up replication jobs. You can do a full, ba full backup, full load, or incremental backup. And then you set up those jobs, and uh, it, you can continue your applications uh, uh, to run on your source database, and behind the screen, it will complete the replication. And once it's complete, once the replication is done, you can do your to, like, typical validations, maybe do a row count check, and, and once you think that, yes, my data, uh, the replication is working, and at that point, you decide, how do you want to cut over? Maybe uh, there's a low time for the application workload. And at that point, you just do a flip switch. You, t you turn over, the, so with minimal, like with seconds to minutes we're talking about, your uh, DNS endpoint can then, uh, if you do DNS switch, now your application, your, uh, the repl target database endpoint can become your primary uh, database and your application can start using that. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very popular service where people use, customers use it to migrate their databases with minimal downtime, and it can work with any SQL Server edition uh, 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 standard or, or enterprise. So, uh, and the optimized CPU, uh, both of us have had uh, very, uh, there were workloads that were not cost uh, effective to run on AWS. And when we dive deep and we work with them, there are two things we could do. One, not use PIOps. Uh, if you need higher uh, IOPS, there's alt alternate ways also to do that. You could take a GP2 volume and strip them together. And, and you compare and consider. If just stripping GP2 multiple GP2 volumes together, which gives you three IOPS per GB. So if I can strip multiple volumes together, I may have a 200 GB database, but I may have to allocate a one terabyte GP2. But then do the cost comparison, like getting a one terabyte stripped volume of GP2 versus uh, 200 GB uh, PI plus PIOPS cost, what is more cost effective? 
And there is no right and wrong answer. It's just that sometimes one works uh, more cost effective than the other, and you, you get this, you meet, still meet your application uh, performance requirement. So optimization or doing the right selection of instance types, EBS, just uh, those are the typical things we come across and hear from the customer. Those are the missing uh, elements. So if there's few things you can take away, I would very strongly emphasize on just looking, there, there are a lot of good articles and more focused sessions only around the SQL Server optimizations. But let's say, okay, now we've got the network set up, we've got the AD, we've got the database migration patterns figured out. So we know, depending on the application, we can we, we use our right option to migrate. Uh, and now we want to do the applications. Uh, and application is where uh, you, uh, we again see a lot of ways to uh, evaluate your considerations, but at the same time, always have an eye out for what you can automate and how to do that uh, in a large, for, for at, at scale. So one of the ways is to use cloud formation template. And before I go there, right, just, just again, my developer self, and this is, this is a mental model I've had for many years when, uh, when I started working in IT. So I, as a developer, I can be uh, sometimes very less confident about my code. I can check in, I do some local testing, and I feel like it's there. Let me deploy it out to the staging environment. And I'll figure it out, I'll test it there and see if it works. And if it works, yeah, great. Otherwise, before my boss finds out, I'll just revert it and I'm back to normal, nothing happened. And, and what, what is powering that? Because it's a file, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a versioned file where I can write my code, I can revert, and uh, I have full control on that. I have, it's, it's, nothing is irreversible. I, I can go back to a state that I wanted, which I had uh, to a good point, uh, 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 reference point. Now, that has never been available to my colleagues who were in sysops, right? Ask them to play around with network firewall rules. They'll say, boss, come back next year. <laughs> this is not what I want to do uh, 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 on a jolly good Monday. So that's the power that cloud formation brings to you. What you do is you describe your, you think of what you need. I need a load balancer. I need a set of web servers behind it. I need an auto-scaling group to cover that web server. Then I need an internal load balancer, which all these web servers should talk to. Then I need an app tier. And then I need a database. Uh, and, and maybe the, now you think about security groups. Web server security group should not have direct access to my database. That's my architecture best practice. But how do you enforce it on premises? Right? You, we do a lot of meetings. We do a lot of discussions. But after those discussions, does it always remain that way? We have no idea to validate. It's difficult to do that on premises. But here, if you set up a security group, web security group, name it that way, database security group, it doesn't have access. You can constantly run audit on this even later on. And then uh, the app tier security group has access. All this in an order fashion, you can describe that in, in a cloud formation template, and that becomes a stack for you. And then you can combine multiple stacks together. And that gives you a file. It's a JSON or YAML file. You version it. You check it in a common repository. You deploy it. And where does it add real value? I go back to my customers where I work with and challenge them that may, they, they've been, they, they come back sometimes to me that I've been using FI load balancer all the time. And I said, okay, that's great, but do you want to try something else? Like, no, 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 I don't want to touch that. <laughs> Not on my watch. <laughs> the, you try that somewhere, other place, and if it's successful in another part of the organization, then maybe I'll consider, but don't, don't ask me to change that. 
But I say, okay, then let's go migrate your application stack as is. But now that gives you the power. You can go to AWS Marketplace. There may be an alternate product, uh, maybe cheaper, maybe more features, uh, depending on what you're really looking for. Or maybe uh, ELB. And you can switch that over and have two different stacks, try them out, deploy them, test your application. If it works, it's great. You, know, you now have more data points to make an informed decision. So those, that's the power I see in cloud formation, that it allows you to build architecture, provision resources, uh, and then make it adaptable, flexible, to innovate, not just for now, but later. But at the bare minimum, those things aside, it's really, really, really powerful. If there's, again, few things that you can take away with this session, I'd say strongly uh, look at cloud formation, make it your de facto way of uh, building infrastructure or provisioning infrastructure on AWS. The next uh, tool that offers you ability to automate is System Manager. And I, again, in this session, we are going broad uh, in many places and we'll go deep dive on key aspects. So we're not able to cover uh, all these features uh, of System Manager, but this is a hidden gem. It's a free service, nothing gets better than free. It's a free service and it has many features that are, that just make it, uh, uh, so easy to operate on, uh, operate Windows workloads on AWS. For example, inventory. If you want to look at all your uh, managed instances and see how many of them are running SQL Server and which version, or you have some other maybe Qualsys agents you are running or some other applications you are running, you want to get an inventory out of it. You want to do a select star from my instances and tell me which, how many instances uh, have this particular application. You can do that. Uh, to give you a practical example, maybe there is a CVE, some vulnerability exposed with certain application. Now, what happens now? If, if a new alert, new blog article comes up that there is a vulnerability in this application, everyone gets on the fire drill, right? It's like everybody in the organization trying to find which server has running this uh, version of my application. But if, if I could go into inventory, run select star, boom, I get my coffee, this server, now I know how to quarantine that or do some action on, on, on top of that and I can move on from there. So features like that, uh, we'll look at a couple of them, the automation and patch manager. So automation is a way to, uh, uh, let me take a step back, right? So uh, how do you create images on, uh, the fundamental way you launch an instance on AWS is by creating an AMI. We publish Windows Server's AMIs, uh, you can start from there, but then most enterprises won't, that will not be their golden image. They'll have other ISV products, other solutions, uh, li like uh, maybe antivirus, uh, other tools that they would install on that. And this is not a one-time process. It keeps on changing every month, right? Uh, as Windows uh, publishes updates, we would update our AMI. It goes down to PV drivers, uh, your other application that you're running. You have to constantly do that update to build your version of your golden AMI. And from that, you will launch EC2 instance. So, Automation is a feature that can help you do that in an automated way. Automation is just a, a capability where it will start from an AMI, launch an instance, run a script that you configure it to run. From uh, that, after it uh, is done all that, do, do a sysprep, take an image, kill that instance, and at the end you have another AMI which has got the new updates that you wanted it to have. And those installed scripts could be anything. It could, be, it could be even an extension of your CDCI pipeline. Let's say there's an application you want on the server all the time. You 
you're building it with the CDCI uh, deployment pipeline. You build that, integrate that with automation. As soon as you build that application, you deploy that on this, uh, uh, you trigger an automation job, which will go pull that AMI, install, the, launch an instance, install your application, uh, do any pre-post script that you've configured it to do, and then again create an AMI, and you can tag it. Now the power comes that it's, because it's integrated with the rest of the AWS ecosystem, uh, other products and services, you can trigger a Lambda on top of that. So you can have this constantly running maybe every day. Uh, uh, once the new AMI is there, you may have servers running with the previous AMI, right? You may have auto-scaling group with launch configuration, they're already running. So you can now trigger a Lambda and say, okay, I've done my work, I've created a new image which has the right version of the application that I need. You go now in a gradual format, go ahead and update the launch configuration of the, all the auto-scaling groups uh, that this instance is part, this AMI is part of. So those are the capabilities that uh, uh, just can help you reduce the manual task. And once you make it part of your automated deployment pipeline, uh, it just scales, whether it's 100 or 10 servers, it doesn't make a difference, right? So some of the things, again, uh, uh, I just described this whole process, but you can take it back and use this as ways to automate tasks to do with your AMIs. One way is to create your golden AMIs. Other way could be in migration. Uh, let's say you have some PowerShell scripts that uh, uh, help you maybe install some applications or configure a particular product. Uh, you can start with a marketplace AMI or our base AMI and then uh, take it through this process where you bring your own PowerShell script that you use on-premises, but you make it as part of an uh, SSM automation job, and then it runs on the base AMI, and now you, that becomes a migration pattern for you, that you start from a clean AMI, configure what applications you need to configure, and then uh, you tag it, because this, this is a regular continuous process. You want maybe a tag, this is my latest AMI, and then have a Lambda function. You will create a cloud formation template as I uh, discussed earlier with load balancer, web servers, app servers. But the AMIs have been changing. Every time you run this job, I get a different AMI ID. So how do I, it's a chicken and egg thing, right? I have to describe my cloud formation template. I need to insert an AMI ID there. If I don't have it, I can't configure. But you can write a Lambda function and say, okay, go find the AMI ID with this tag. Okay, app one web server. AMI, I can get that and I can, it can be part of your cloud formation in its script, it will replace, map that AMI ID for that web server and then uh, it's a temp, and there's a blog article that describes that uh, really well if you want to do that. So all in all, these are the tools uh, which can help you automate your AMI creation process or even patch management on AWS. Now this is the secret sauce with which we can, will take how Unicorn Shop uh, migrated their application. Uh, server migration service from AWS is an agentless uh, migration service which allows you to replicate your uh, server volumes without bringing your server down. So if you have on-premises environment, hundreds of servers running, you go to AWS console, create this uh, SMS connector, it gets downloaded, it can work with Hyper-V. As of last year, it was only working, uh, the Hyper-V support was not there, but then it was announced uh, uh, earlier this year, I think it was in the last reInvent, uh, that it also now supports Hyper-V. 
So no matter what you're using from uh, your virtual uh, uh, servers management, you can now use SMS as a, uh, uh, this uh, SMS agent on that virtu uh, virtualized environment. It will launch a VM, and then it will call that API of your virtual manager, whether it's vCenter, uh, and get the list of servers that are running, push that up. We have a management console. There you see the list of servers. Now you can go to that server, select the servers that you want to replicate, and you can replicate today, you can replicate in future, you can set up like maybe replicate this server uh, starting Saturday, and then uh, keep, rep keep taking the incremental changes every four hours. Or now, as of last, as of two weeks back, it was minimum 12 hours, now it is one hour. So this just changes the way in which you can migrate servers at large scale to AWS. And again, one of the very popular surveys, uh, I've had customers who've spoken about this, and they said they, somebody came, spoke about this in a meeting, two hours later, they migrated two application servers uh, to AWS. So it is, it is a very seamless, and uh, how much does it cost? It's free. <laughs> so why not consider that? But that, that means maybe there will be some scenarios where it may not work for you, depending on the features. You look at it, consider there are other partners, of our rich partner ecosystem, because we've been, the, uh, uh, the 10 years of experience now that comes, starts to play, uh, play a contributing role where partners have built a lot of ISV solutions uh, which help in, for niche areas. So they extend whatever services we have, and they like there's partners like Cloud Endure uh, and others which can uh, also assist in your migration journey. So with that, uh, let's, uh, I think, yeah, uh, this is the process uh, that I just described that you uh, install an image, rep, and then trigger a job through SMS, and then it creates an AMI, and it, you can say I want the last two AMIs, if you're replicating continuously, uh, and one consideration there will be that first time when you replicate, because it's a uh, initial seed part, you have to make sure your network bandwidth is available because it's taking the entire server, uh, the block, and replicating it uh, on the target environment, creating an AMI. But once it's done, it only does the incremental changes. So whatever blocks changed, it's smart and intelligent enough to only move that. So from that point on, it becomes effective. So uh, uh, a very uh, highly recommended service. And now with that AMI, whatever we talked about in SSM and cloud formation, all that can be also extended. So you can take this AMI, just go and launch an EC2 instance, or you can make it part of a cloud formation template and, uh, and uh, uh, automation job to trigger that. So that enables this process. Uh, you can create, uh, you can start replication job, create an AMI, launch it through cloud formation template, or use SSM to add more. Uh, you can start with a base AMI, maybe a Windows Server AMI or a SharePoint base AMI, and then keep adding what you need uh, on top of that. And the tools that can help you uh, through that journey uh, and this is actually, uh, yeah, let's look at cloud formation and system manager. How do you optimize the typical packet software? You can't, most of the times you may not be able to use auto-scaling. Wherever you can, please do, do so. But packet softwares are otherwise built with a lot of dependency uh, uh, and you might have some license consideration that you may have to consider. So if some uh, licensing uh, constraints require you to have visibility to the socket, which is typically not available with a default tenancy EC2 instance, you can consider using dedicated host. Dedicated host is a full physical server. You, uh, uh, you get the full physical server. You can only run one family, like, like a M4 large uh, across this, or M4-2x large. You can't mix and match the instance type. That's a constraint. So if you do your uh, instance site selection appropriately, 
uh, and try to cover more than half of the direct, uh, dedicated hosts, sometimes it is more cost effective than running them as uh, on demand. So if, if there are some workloads which uh, are cost prohibitive to run on demand, one way to look at it is the, can you use dedicated host, which is a physical rack of server. You would have to all, uh, definitely look at the high availability co constraints there and how do you build high availability. Uh, there are patterns to do that. Uh, and then also while you're migrating, a lot of uh, the application may be dependent on like a lot of files uploads, blob uploads, videos. Do you just take them as is and do the same block attached storage? Or can you start leveraging S3? If it's a .NET application, there's .NET SDK to upload file to S3. So you're, you can just maybe if it's a, uh, assuming if it, it's a centralized data access layer code, you can replace that with a dot, use the AWS SDK for .NET, upload the file to S3, keep the metadata in the database, and that way you can now optimize. Your storage can be highly durable, available in S3, and then you take advantage of the rest of the S3, like set up the storage uh, types, infrequent access, uh, uh, and all the other advantages of uh, uh, the S3, right? So the, those are some ways, and now Windows file server, the FSX. So I've taken a lot of time. Uh, we might extend a little bit, but let's, uh, uh, the key aspect around the rest of the application is that uh, you'd look at .NET full framework, .NET core, what is the combination that you have, what are the end state targets uh, that you are going towards, uh, more and more we see customers tell us that they want to go towards .NET Core. It helps you to build a cross-platform application that can run on Linux as well as Windows. But sometimes it's not just uh, at large-scale migration or uh, in the context of migration, it's not an easy task to just refactor the application, .NET full framework, uh, uh, what if it's a WCF service? You can't right away now look at it as a .NET Core uh, alternative. You, so you have to consider those things. But if you can do .NET Core and containerize it, and use your, extend your CDCI pipeline, you can deploy that on ECS. And ECS with Fargate, if it's a .NET Core application. Fargate is a serverless container orchestration. It's, it gives you an, it, it does create servers to deploy your containers, but you don't see the servers. So you don't have to manage them. In ECS, if you're doing a launch type of EC2, then you're managing to those instances. You still have to give the love and care to those instances. But if it's a .NET full framework app, then you have to go with ECS. So those are choices that you would consider, but, and that's what Uni, uh, Unicorn Shop did. Uh, they looked at what, where they can, where they had a lot of change coming, where they had direction to do, uh, go towards microservices. They started going towards the ECS direction, uh, containerized their application, deployed it through ECS, uh, and extended their uh, CDCI pipeline. And some other places where there was uh, dev test workload, you just needed something to be deployed quickly. They use Elastic Beanstalk to do that. There were some bad jobs that they could consider refactoring and just take that code, upload that to Lambda, uh, and, and go from there. One thing about Lambda, how many, uh, of, you, how many of you here are like sysops engineers working with PowerShell most of the time? A few of you, right? So do, Lambda also supports PowerShell core. So you don't have, like, choose the language that you love and you enjoy working with and get started with Lambda. And you can, any sysops jobs, if you're running something to get some files out of a server, uh, maybe some ETL kind of processing jobs, some validation, if you are writing a bad job to run it on an EC2 server or a server, now you can translate that to a, maybe a, a, a serverless compute and, and, and do that through uh, Lambda. And there are many ways to optimize if you're running on ECS. Very recently, I think as of two weeks back, I mean, I'm just amazed with this feature. 
EC2 auto scaling group with combination with EC2 fleet. So what you can do is you can create an auto scaling group and say, give me uh, a combination of instance type because then I have diverse diversity. I give me a C4 large, give me M4 large, uh, uh, but I need this much minimum CPU and this much RAM, and you scale. Uh, when my application demand increases, you go ahead and launch these instances. But wait, I want to optimize how much I pay for those instances as well. And that's where uh, I want to use a combination of spot, I want to use a combination of on-demand and RI. I don't want to figure it out. I'll tell you, take 20% on-demand, 70%, 80% uh, spot at this minimal price. And then the auto-scaling group makes decisions on your behalf based on the configuration that you've done. You've decided what kind of capacity you need, what kind of core and RAM you need, and what kind of distribution you need between on-demand and spot. And obviously, RI will cover depending on what you have RI coverage in your account. And now, just the equation changes, the cost model changes. If you can run most of the time in spot, you may be able to get 70 to 90% cost savings on that. And for that, you just had to make those initial selections, and after that, you auto-scaling group does that for you. So really, really powerful feature. Uh, uh, just recently launched, I encouraged to explore that further uh, for your application migrations. So again, uh, these are some choices that uh, uh, Unicorn Shop made for themselves. Um, so in the interest of time, I'll skip that. Monitoring is important once you've migrated the applications. And your initial starting point could be your SCOM, like your, uh, there's an AWS management extension pack that you can install for your uh, SCOM, and you can continue to use that. But more and more we hear from the customers is that, while that's good, that's a good starting point, I get a single plane of glass to like, look at my on-premises instances and the instances running on uh, AWS, but the operating model in cloud is very different, right? You, you, you're adding instances, you're removing terminating instances, you're working on serverless, you're looking at ECS, tomorrow you might look at something else. All those gamuts of things, maybe sometimes, and then triggering lifecycle. Based on lifecycle, I said, as you launch an EC2 instance, you create an AMI, you update it, you create a tag, and then the Lambda comes in and makes it part, uh, part updates the uh, auto-scaling groups. Some of those things, to monitor it more effectively, you need a cloud-native tool. And that's where CloudWatch comes in pretty handy, and the multiple uh, other logs where it can, a uh, CloudWatch agent can uh, centralize uh, your uh, logs from multiple sources, be it Windows performance counters, uh, be it your Windows event logs, be your custom application logs. You can just map your CloudWatch agent to those uh, 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 reference points, and then it will move those data uh, to CloudWatch logs. And in the CloudWatch logs, then you can set some metrics and alerts. Uh, uh, set some thresholds. If it breaches certain th threshold, send me an alert. Or create a dashboard, like on Elasticsearch or Kibana, or uh, get some insights of how many times something has failed, how many times un uh, uh, unsuccessful attempts have been made to log on to the server. Put that onto a quick side dashboard. Or uh, use a Lambda to put it on, if you have a Slack channel for sysops guys, and you just, uh, now Lambda can uh, talk to that Slack channel as soon as the data comes in, and based on the threshold breach, it can now pop up a chat box uh, uh, interface that this is something that you can consider. So all uh, allows you to do multiple different ways. So, so I think the message here that I want to leave you with is that there are many ways to bring your application code uh, on AWS while you can scale with server migration service and do a large scale migration very quickly. And please do uh, consider that and, and look at uh, it if you go back. 
And then uh, you can replatform, look at containers with ECS and the auto-scaling group. And as well as you can just start with your functional code and start building serverless applications uh, and just take, go cloud native. And this is what Unicorn Shop did. Uh, and the considerations and how you make those decisions will be different, but at least you, you do, you, hopefully you get a perspective of what, what are the options. And while we look at the server, but never you would actually migrate uh, thinking servers in mind, right? It's not that I say, okay, get my, all my web servers and I'll figure out when I have to do the middleware or database. You're always thinking in the context of an application. My application has these many servers, these web servers and all that. You want to track that at that level. That's where AWS Migration Hub come, comes in. It can help you uh, track your migration journey at an application level uh, and give you a centralized place. And it doesn't necessarily, you don't have to necessarily use the SMS service. It's integrated with some of the partner solutions like Cloud Endure, uh, or I, uh, I'll have to look it up, but I think that few, few partner solutions that it's integrated with. So whether you use server migration service or we also have an application discovery service, uh, you can, you're definitely welcome to use that and encourage you to use that. But then if you want to use some other services, uh, there are, uh, it's a growing ecosystem where you can uh, then track it in one place. So those are typical concerns, again, with migration. How do I have one central place to understand how many servers have migrated? How many are in progress? What are remaining? And that at an application level, not at the server level. Uh, and look at the failed jobs. What failed and how to, who has to do the next task there? So many other, uh, we talked about few tools and services, but there are many other services. Uh, again, those are the considerations where you may want to engage with a solution architect or an AWS uh, 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 contact you have. Uh, or just go out and explore what, what's available to uh, help you in this journey. So we looked at, uh, we understood the journey, why we are going, it's important to know why we are going, where we are going. We understood now how we can get there faster, how we can optimize the downtime, how we can reduce risk. There are a lot of tools and services available to support customers migrating Windows workloads. And then really where uh, rubber hits the road is this, you want to now move fast and stay secure. How do you do that? So once you go back and let's say you've done all this work and now you uh, start growing, right? So you have accounts sprawl, a lot of AWS accounts, and now if you have to control the identities in each of these accounts, how would you do that? Like who has admin access on this AWS account? And wh what is dev, what is non-prod, uh, uh, what is prod? And this just <laughs> could be very scary, <laughs> right? But that's where AWS organization, if you've not considered, that allows you to do a central account management. You can, how would you typically think about your organization, right? Maybe it starts with the CEO, there are VPs, there are directors, they have separate responsibilities of the organization that they work with. Uh, and then you just map that into AWS organization as OUs, organization units. And then you map accounts uh, to those OUs. And then, you start applying what is called service control policies at the OU level. So you can say dev OU is allowed to have maybe $500 per month budget, and that applies to each of the accounts under dev OU. You can say dev OU, you have the developers in this AD group has full access, and you map those roles. You can see I have prod and prod PCI here in the context of Unicorn Shop, because the, cons the compliance regulatory requirements are different. There are not all the AWS services may not be compatible with the PCI, right? I want to only whitelist the services that are PCI compliant so that just, I don't leave it to the developer to figure it out. 
I, uh, I can set those as policies. I, let's say, for example, sake, here, if I say only allow uh, calling an EC2 API or a CloudWatch API, uh, which will be too restrictive, I think people will be looking for me uh, if I do that. <laughs> but that's just to, that goes to say the, how, what you can do with uh, security control policy, uh, so, sorry, service control policies on OU to control access in a centralized way. So now once you have this, you can distribute that to, uh, like those, you, you're thinking in a more logical uh, way, easier way, and then uh, applying them to multiple accounts. Once you do that, let's, uh, other ways, uh, when we start typically, you, uh, you might have come across a pattern called cross-account roles pattern, where if I need to have, give you, uh, I, I'll maintain a one central like, identity account, where I'll, uh, that's where I'll create IAM users, but then on all the other accounts, I'll create roles. Like he's a developer, he's a sysops, he's production support, break glass, infosec. I create those roles and then I map. This identity user can assume this role in this account. So I allow a way where I'm just defining roles in the uh, target account and I define the permissions that that role can have. Infosec can have full access, and developer can uh, only call EC2 and only launch type T2 instance and things like that. I, I, can, I can influence what it does. It's easy, it's, it's a good pattern to start with. But this gets out of the way very quickly when you are talking about multiple accounts. Because what if I have to change permission of what admin means in a non-production account versus a production account? I have to now go and change the role in that one account. If it's one account, it's okay. It's five accounts, it's okay. Once it starts to get 20, 30, 50, 100, it becomes difficult to go change the roles in each of these accounts. That's where stack sets, the cloud formation stack set comes in very handy. It can help you define your uh, 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 it can again became, becomes one centralized template of uh, all the uh, controls that you need to implement the account and then uh, map it to uh, deploy it across uh, multiple accounts. And security is never just that at the time of launch, it has to be continuous. Uh, you have continuous threats. You have a service called Guard Duty, which can track, uh, it uses machine learning. Uh, technologies, it, you enable that with one checkbox in your account. It goes and looks at, baselines it for 30 days, and then looks at what's going on in your account. Maybe you always had uh, uh, traffic coming from a subnet, web subnet to a, uh, uh, a database subnet, and then suddenly the traffic boosts from some other place. Uh, somebody's trying to clean up its trace, trying to disable cloud trail, then that seems something, something fishy there. It can start sending those uh, findings. Uh, as a it can uh, show you those findings, and then it gives a severity rating between one to ten. One being the least severe, you may find a lot of observations. Ten being very severe, and you want to take some actions on top of that. So you, you just create a rule. Uh, th these are commands. I'll leave it on the screen uh, on how to uh, move those findings onto maybe a CloudWatch event. And once those events happen, then you can uh, map it to a SNS notification, get an alert, or create a Lambda function that can do a corrective action if you so choose to do so. Maybe quarantine, maybe map that security group to only InfoSec team uh, so that they can do, or maybe do forensics, uh, take a copy, move that EBS volume into a forensics account. So you have mechanism, once the findings are available, you can connect them to the rest of the AWS ecosystem. Uh, you can choose to uh, use any threat, get, uh, threat management system that you're used to or you can also look at web application firewall from AWS. It's a managed service. And the other uh, perspective is you can use managed rule sets. There are partners who have built PCI for many different categories. They've created rule sets. So they're looking at all the threats in the market and then 
uh, creating rule sets, you may not have the right, uh, you may not uh, want to invest in that kind of a resources or you may not have the intent to do that. Now you can just use a managed rule set from the partner, from the marketplace, and apply that on the web so that somebody else is managing that and it's dynamic and you have continuous compliance of uh, the latest industry findings. So all this, I'll summarize that basically it will mean that you have to create your own baseline for what's your account, sorry, what's your network baseline, how do you give access to users, uh, what do you do after that. All that, uh, you have to determine what's the landing zone means for you and then create an automated process for all this to come together. Everything is an API and there are reference solutions of how to build a landing zone. Uh, you can look it up, I, I think I may have the link in the resources. So with that, uh, we have a few minutes over already, uh, but I think we just are wrapping up. If you can give us a uh, uh, few more minutes, I think we should not be more than five minutes. No. So while he's bringing up the, uh, one, okay. So, so we talked about organizational policies, AWS organizations, right? And this is how it, it, it looks like. So we have prod, prod PCI, and non-prod. And in case I want to deploy, for my PCI applications, I want to make sure that you know, I have encryption turned on. Any EC2 instance with EBS volumes that are launched in that instance, in that account, needs to have encryption turned on. And, and the way I would enable that is using stack sets. So I go and I create a new stack set. Okay, we have a number of sample stack sets, so I just look at this and hit on next. I give it a name. And I can specify which particular region that I want the stack set to be deployed on. Not just that, I can copy paste my OU, OU ID, right, which is here, to specify that this stack set should be applied only on this OU in this particular region. So those are all the, that is the power that I have at stack sets. These updates need to go only on this specific accounts, right? So, and, and once it goes, the accounts, here we are talking about AWS config. Now, I've, I've just done the uh, stack set deployment previously in the interest of time. So it shows me that three of my existing volumes have not been encrypted. And this is controlled through a centralized place, which is my, my root account. And the stack set went and deployed this rule, which is the config rule, which looks at my infrastructure and figures out what are the things that are deviant and, and gives me a dashboard like this. So three, three of these uh, EBS volumes are not, uh, not encrypted. And based on this, I can take action. I could actually trigger a Lambda function to, to uh, you know, do something, or I can notify people saying that th these volumes are not encrypted and, and uh, we're not being, not being compliant. So uh, that's a quick demo that I had. I, I didn't want to spend too much time. Uh, now then, so what we started with, right, is giving them patterns, practices, and tools, uh, and giving you buildable, building repeatable architectures and continuous compliance. That, that's the promise that we said, right? We'll give you patterns, practices, and tools for migrating Windows applications to AWS. 
how you can build repeatable architectures with CloudFormation or Systems Manager and use continuous compliance using our landing zone solution. Now, putting it all together, right, so the way we look at achieving continuous compliance is when you have AWS and your AWS landing zone, which is your landing zone where you control how you want to configure your, your entire AWS environment as, as a means of achieving continuous compliance. With respect to building repeatable architect architectures, we're talking about cloud formation and AWS Systems Manager to uh, help you build repeatable ar architectures to get the maximum value out of your migration to AWS. And then finally, the patterns, practices, and tools. We talked about how you can bring your, your network, your, C your Active Directory, SQL Server, COTS applications, and custom applications. But I just want to talk about asking a friend. I mean, this is your call to action, right? There are, as, as Giri said, we have 10 years of experience, and not just us, our partners also have 10 years of experience in migrating Microsoft applications to AWS. Speak to a solution architect, uh, speak to a partner, and these are the list of partners that you have who are certified on, on, uh, on our APN network. Yeah, this could be representative. Uh, I think we'll encourage you to go to yeah. the website. Yeah, go to the website and, and uh, you know, uh, get started there. With respect to key takeaways, you know, with Microsoft on AWS, continue to use your familiar tools on AWS. Build a landing zone with automated security and compliance controls that we talked about, about how stack sets and landing zones are very powerful. Start small and be iterative. Look at one specific account. Automate, automate, automate. That is the best way you can actually get value out of your migration to AWS. And leverage managed services where, where possible, like RDS. And leverage the partner ecosystem and the AWS marketplace where, where, and where possible. Yeah. So here are the resources. Uh, and thank you so much. Thank you. I can only say that you're in a good company. <laughs> please leave feedback on the uh, yeah, mobile app. Yeah, yeah, please do give us feedback. If you have any questions, we'll be on the side. Yeah, we'll be on the side. Okay.